Welcome to The Lamp Post in the Woods, the podcast that shines a light on the significance of the greatest stories ever told. From fairy tales to literary classics to the parables of Jesus, these stories have influenced the lives of countless people and still do. Here at The Lamp Post in the Woods, we journey through the great books, dramas, poems, and stories to find what they have to say for our lives today. I'm your host, Dinah Koppel, and joining me in this fellowship are Benjamin Koppel, Jennifer Malik, and Evan Zenobia. I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather. And that was C.S. Lewis writing to his goddaughter, Lucy Barfield, of which the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was dedicated to. I think we all really just have a special place in our hearts for this book um, for a number of reasons. I don't know about the rest of our audience. I don't know about you guys, but like for me, this was an early age book. My, my father read this book to me. It was incredibly approachable at a young age, but even as I grow through it now, read through these, these, what, what, I guess the best way I can put it is this book in my mind, uh, occupies such a large space. It's like this incredible narrative. And then to find that it's such a small book and how approachable it is, not just for children. I think the, I think the suggested reading age is like nine years old. Um, but just the themes that are, go throughout. And I just find that regardless of your age, it's amazing to be able to approach this book and kind of re-experience the world uh, through children's eyes. Um, and so whether you're a child or a full-grown adult, there's just something so approachable and so beautiful about the way that this book is presented. Um, I don't know. I think it's just something that everyone can relate to, uh, no matter what your reading level is or if you're jumping into fiction for the first time. Well, everyone, this is season one, episode two, and boy, are we excited. I mean, we could even say that not even a box of delicious Turkish delight could make us any more happy right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so on our podcast, we are going to be doing different types of episodes, but for the type of episode that we're going to be doing today, we are going to be diving deep, real, diving real deep into a specific work of fiction. We're going to be spotlighting one particular work of fiction and devoting our entire episode to talking about it. So for our full first full-length episode, we wanted to do a very, very special book, a popular one that represents our podcast and one that we all love and I'm sure our listeners love very much as well. And so what better book to start out with than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, the book that gave us our podcast name, The Lamppost in the Woods. So in today's episode, we are going to be digging into this classic, and we're going to be telling you all why we love it so much and why it is important to your spiritual life. And so since we're going to be discussing significant plot details, go ahead and consider this as your spoiler warning. So if you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which if you haven't, what are you even doing with your life? Go drop what you're doing and read it right now. Um, but really, if you don't want it spoiled, you should go ahead and read the book and then come back and listen. All right, so let's go ahead and climb into the wardrobe and start this episode. Okay, you guys? 
Woo. So, so Evan, why don't you go ahead and just give us a little plot summary? While sent to live with the rich professor, Kurt, the escape to escape the London blitz bombings of World War II, four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy Pevensey, climb into a magical wardrobe and stumble into the world of Narnia, where fawns, centaurs, and talking animals live and breathe, and where the world is under the spell of an evil white witch. The children meet Aslan, the great lion, and are thrust into a great battle to save the day, and their lives are never the same again. Awesome. All right, so let's have a little bit more information on C.S. Lewis or Clive Staples Lewis. Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about him? Yes, so I know a lot about C.S. Lewis. Um, in college, I studied a lot about C.S. Lewis and afterwards, so I have a little fun fact before we get into some of the more details. Now, Dinah just said that C.S. Lewis's name stands for Clive Staples, but do you guys know the actual name that he went by, by his close family and friends? Hmm. It's open to the table. So if you know the answer. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jack. Oh yeah, yeah, Jack. Yes. It is Jack. <laughs> yes, it is Jack. And the story behind that is when he was four years old, his favorite dog, Jaxi, died. And he marched into his house and told everyone that he now needs to be called Jaxi. So, so it's like Indiana Jones then. Yeah, basically. Yeah, okay. exactly. Named I like him even better dog. now. <laughs> I just love that at four years old, he just had the audacity to walk into his house and just say, you know what? Now I'm going to go by Jaxi. So, well, and the thing that his parents and everyone else was like, okay. I mean, at four years old, if I marched in and said I wanted to go by the right. dog's name, my parents would be like, mm, ha, funny, no, you're not. <laughs> not only a dog, yeah, not only a dog's name, but a dead dog. Yeah. Just keep oh that in goodness. mind, too. <laughs> All right. So there's, there's a little fun <laughs> fact for you. But a few words on Lewis. So Lewis grew up in Ireland, where his nurse used to always tell him and his brother Irish myths. This is where Lewis first fell in love with mythology, and it greatly influenced his writing. And if you see in later interviews, he... Uh, goes on to say that while he loves all mythology, Irish mythology is his favorite. And I think that just goes to show we go back to the stories that shaped us when we were children, which the line which the wardrobe shaped all of us as children, which is why we're all discussing it today. After the death of his mother in 1913, C.S. Lewis is sent to England for private tutoring by W.T. Kirkpatrick. Lewis flourished under Professor Kirkpatrick's instruction and was later accepted to Oxford University. Lewis honored his tutor by naming a character after him in the Chronicles of Narnia, which we are introduced to in the magician's nephew as Professor Kirk. After serving in World War I, Lewis took a position at Oxford University in 1925, where he met a group of friends who also shared his love for literature and writing. They called themselves the Inklings and would meet at the Eagle and Child pub in the rabbit room, where they would discuss anything and everything. While there were many club members who came and went, the main four were Lewis, Charles William, Owen Barfield, and J.R.R. Tolkien, which Owen Barfield is the father of Lucy Barfield, of whom the, the book of The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe was dedicated to. Interesting. You know, another thing that I read about Lewis is that um, when he was a child, he made a makeup, uh, he, or excuse me, he made a make-believe world called Animal Land, um, and he kind of created creatures and all that that came from that, which I think is just so cool, and so we can totally see how if he had a mythical place called Animal Land and he was a kid, we see how all of his talking animals and all that in the Chronicles of Narnia kind of came to be, which I think is just so cool because it shows the creativity of childhood and you never know 
where those childhood creativities will take you. Actually, um, the Bronte siblings, so Charlotte, Anne, and Emily, you know, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, all that good stuff. When they were children, they actually also created magical worlds, um, which I think was kind of cool. It was called Gondol and Angria. And it's just neat because you see these kids who before they wrote their big novels as adults, they were very creative and were playing make-believe when they were children. Now, how many of us when we were kids were playing make-believe games and all that? And so it's just so... Uh, cool and it's like yes we should encourage young children to be able to to be able to have make-believe because you never know what it's going to to lead to in their lives which is kind of cool so, so cool that's so cool I have so many sketches of like old like like creations like people characters and like another character obviously like Reap a Cheap in in Lewis mm -hmm. writings right one of my favorite characters of all time and like I have drawn so many like sword wielding mice um <laughs> like it's just a thing that I did for like years it was just such a cool deal I remember drawing like pirate mice and like you know armor wearing my it was like the coolest thing to me for some reason that character always like stuck with me um and I feel like I created my own little worlds back in the day in like first and second grade just just off of that exactly that's cool which yeah. is yeah which is why we should keep on being creative and encourage kids to be creative because you never know what all what it'll bring to absolutely and you know like right. actually the lion the witch in the wardrobe was the first book that really like sparked my imagination so we used to as kids there was me and my brother and then two of my cousins and we all played susan peter edmund and lucy and we would act out narnia from the very beginning to the end like nice. that was the thing that we would do, and we would do it multiple <laughs> times. Like, I, man, I guess we had nothing else better to do, but it was just something, you know, like as kids, you're just so inspired by this other world and you right. wanted so much to be a part of it. That Who did you, you play, Jen? What character did you play? I always had to play Lucy because I was <laughs> the youngest, well, not the youngest, but I was the youngest female. And I don't know. Like, I just felt like she wasn't as much of a warrior as, as Susan was. Oh, come on. She's, okay. well, as you see, Lucy, <laughs> but she is. she's an awesome character. So she is. Yeah. You definitely didn't get like the short end of the stick there. <laughs> no. All right, Jen, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the book and its conception? Yeah. So Lewis first started writing, writing this book in 1939. And if you know your World War II history, that was right at the time when uh, World War II had started over in Europe. And three girls, Margaret, Mary, and Catherine, were actually evacuated from London during the time of the anticipated bombings and sent to live with Lewis in the countryside for a short time. And so it seems to be that this situation is the inspiration for the four children, Susan, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy, who were sent to live with the old professor in the books of Narnia. Now, Lewis started writing this book in 1939, and he didn't finish it until 1949 which for me, that makes me feel so much better as an author that it took him 10 years <laughs> to write a book. So if I'm taking you know, a year or two to write a book, I feel so much better about myself. Um, but so it took him a decade to write a book and the novel was then published in 1950. Now with his first draft, it was originally, uh, as we mentioned, he had the inklings and so they would share all their writings with one another and they would edit one another's work. They would read their first drafts and he had the initial draft read by the inklings, but none of them liked it. Like not even one of them. 
I I would probably have been crushed uh, if I sent my first manuscript to Dinah, Ben, and Evan, and they all hated it. Like, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> so Lewis, he's still, they were still friends uh, afterwards. And he was like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm still, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a good story. And he did. And a couple of years later, he came out with the final draft and it was very well received, except Tolkien still did not care for it. <laughs> no, there always is one oh, friend. Jerk. Yeah, one friend. There's that one who friend. Just doesn't like it. You know, Tolkien was like, "Are they like wearing rings at all? Are yeah. there? There's not enough orcs in this. Like, it's, it's just like, <laughs> you didn't 100%. create your own language. You're a poser. You didn't. Create, <laughs> yeah. You didn't create your own language and mythology. <laughs> That's actually one of the things that he that I think Tolkien said too was because his his world wasn't that thought out or that it just wasn't yeah enough so like come on we can't Tolkien, all be talking yeah, yeah he might have been a hard friend like he would have been cool but he may have been kind of a hard friend to have so i don't yeah. know cool quotation marks <laughs> exactly i've created my own language exactly i'm better than everybody and all else. and lewis was like oh, okay yeah this guy yeah. <laughs> well speaking of allegory <clears throat> yeah uh, yeah. I just realized we didn't make a transition for this uh, point here, but we're going to go into anyways. Now, <laughs> now that we've got a, a good history of the book and its, and its author, let's talk about an important point. Um, I would say an important slander of this book, <laughs> people call it. Mm. And uh, it's that people say it is an allegory. And uh, I like to call uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, um, the most well-known allegory. That's not an allegory because if you say that word <laughs> for some reason, it always comes up with with um, identified with this book. But it is not, in fact, an allegory. And I would like to at least take a moment and just tell you why. And let's let's learn and grow in this sort of thing. So here's the question: Is it an allegory? No, it is not. Well, let's talk about the definition of what an allegory is. According to Oxford Languages, the definition of an allegory is a work that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. And the word allegory comes from the Latin allegoria, meaning other speaking. Or in other words, an allegory is one thing that means something else. Mm -hmm. So it can be a poem, it can be a book, it can be a, a piece of art, but it's one thing and it's trying to say something else. So a story is allegorical when the words in it mean something else. You tell one story in order to tell another story. Some very famous examples of allegories are number one, Animal Farm by George Orwell is a very obvious allegory because it's one story. It's a story about farm animals living on a farm who kick the farmer out and make their own society. But really what Orwell's doing is telling another story by using those farm animals. For those of you who've read the book, you know, he's he's it's a very clear allegory for the rise of uh the Bolshevik revolution in Russia and the rise of communism uh, in Russia. It's a very, a very, he's telling one story to tell another. Another very obvious allegory is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, which is a very, very heavy handed one. And you know, an allegory of the, of the Christian walk of the, the journey of, of, of the journey to Christ. The character's name is Christian. Yeah. He goes <laughs> through his life, you know, and he meets these characters like the giant of despair or he meets, uh, you know, he there's there's like the pit of, there's all these there's all these different sort of things that go in the story. Is that there's one? There's the giant of despair too. He also meets yeah. Moses, or he meets the law of Moses, who beats him over the head, and that's you know, it's an allegory for how the law of Moses is 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 rough and and hardness. 
So it's an obvious allegory, very obvious. The parables of Jesus are mostly allegorical. Think of the parable of the sower and the seeds, mm -hmm. right? Jesus tells a story about a sower who sows four different types of seeds. But what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about four different types of people who hear the word of God and how, and how they allow things to grow into their heart. That's what an allegory is. Now, in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis is only telling one story. There's no hidden meaning in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not telling the story of Narnia in order to tell another story. He's not, the, 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 common, the common idea is that the Chronicles of Narnia are an allegory for the Bible or for the, the Christian life. Not that there's no connection with, with, between the two and that we can't learn from one or the other, but Lewis is not writing these stories in order to tell another story. Mm -hmm. So his books don't really fit the definition of an allegory. And part of the reason is that is because allegories kind of need to be intended by the author. If something's an allegory, the author wrote it with the intent of, of it meaning something else. Based on his own words, Lewis did not write Chronicles of Narnia to mean something else, all right? He didn't mean for it to be an allegory. And remember, Lewis was a medieval scholar who actually mm -hmm. wrote a book called The Allegory of Love. So he was very well versed in what an allegory was. But let me just read you a couple of quotes by the man. In one letter to James E. Higgins from 1962, Lewis writes, the Narnian books are not as much allegory as supposal. Suppose there were a Narnian world and it, and in it like ours, or and it like ours needed redemption. What kind of incarnation and passion might Christ be supposed to undergo there? So we're supposing here that there's this world called, Nar called Narnia. What would happen if Jesus went there, or if he created that world? Mm -hmm. Speaking of Jesus or, or the character there, um, the character of Aslan, speaking of the character of Aslan, Lewis said, if Aslan represented the immaterial deity in the same way in which giant despair represents despair, again, referring to Pilgrim's Progress or similar works like that, he would be an allegorical figure. In reality, however, he is an invention giving an imaginary answer to the questions, what might Christ become like if there really were a world like Narnia, and he chose to be incarnate and die and rise again in that world as he actually has done in ours. Mm -hmm. This is not allegory at all, end quote. That's so cool. That's so, so cool. So Lewis never really meant for his works to be taken as some sort of hidden allegory with hidden meaning about what, uh, you know, for the Bible or, or for some sort of religious meaning. He just wanted to write a story. Mm -hmm. Now, he obviously right. put these sort of Christian themes in there, but it's not meant to mean something hidden. So if Chronicles of Narnia is not an allegory, what then is it? Mm -hmm. Well, the term that Lewis used for was suppositional, or he turned it a supposition, as in, suppose God made this other world, and it was different from Mars, and it had talking animals and magic and things like that. Well, how would he interact in that world? Again, it doesn't mean that perhaps portions of the novels you can't say have allegorical meaning or symbolic meaning, right? but it's not really correct to call it an allegory. Right. Now, far from harming their reception, I think... Lewis's idea of it being a supposition actually enhances them and is way cooler than an allegory, right? Right, Because, right. because it's something brand new. Mm -hmm. He didn't write an allegory. He wrote a story that incorporated these themes and these images from the Bible in order right. to tell another story. Exactly. It, it, the way I think of it, it's almost like a historical fiction about mm -hmm. God. I don't yeah. mean to sound blasphemous or something, but it's like, it's, it's, we took God and he made this other world. What would he do in that world? Right, right. And I think that's a whole lot more interesting and a whole lot more meaningful than just a work that supposedly has this hidden meaning. Yeah.
That's good. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And what do you guys think about that? No, I mean, I, I like it. And I'm glad you're mentioning that because I probably mistakenly have called it an allegory in the past. And I think that I have too, for years yeah. I did. And I think that's oversimplifying it when really it mm -hmm. is, it's like a, a, like a what if, which just, mm -hmm. which I think in a lot of ways is so much more, more cool, you know? It's funny because you see that in his, in like the space trilogy that Lewis writes, mm -hmm. it's that same deal, but it's almost more fleshed out. Like he, he really does like build and, and he's not like shy about being like, okay, there's a new planet and there are perfect beings there. And like someone's trying to mess up the perfect plan of this, you know, great entity. And so it's neat that he kind of, I don't know, it's with the Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe and the Chronicles of Narnia in general, I, you just see like a progression as a writer. Like you can just see this cool growth totally. of who he's becoming. And <laughs> yeah. then it, it, it carries over into these other uh, works that he's doing. It's just like, it's, it's so interesting to see him grow and change right. um right. because i think it it's a good reflection of who he was as as a person as a believer as a christian himself like it was just like transforming and he was so excited he just wanted to like get these ideas on paper yeah. even though i don't know it was like a way to it's like i don't yet know just the quite the scope of what i believe and but i want to get it on paper because i know i believe mm -hmm. it kind of thing exactly. right right and it's it's so interesting because he like he, he, he uses these books to explore concepts right. in the Bible, like this children's literature, rather than just like talk about it or discuss it. Mm -hmm. he, he takes these ideas, makes these situations and then, and then goes, okay, how would this work? Now, based on what we know from the Bible, based on what we know what God is, how would this sort of situation work out? Right. You know, and it kind of gives you these sort of these insights, you know, even as a child or as an adult, these insights to kind of what the world is like, what reality is like, and maybe even what, what God is like by right. looking, by living in this, this sort of a fantasy, this mm -hmm. fake world, if you will. Yeah, totally. I think too, like this idea that people misunderstanding as an allegory, it like turns people off to reading it. Like people see it as a children's book. People mm -hmm. see it as an allegory and they're like, oh, that doesn't like appeal to me at all. Um, when in reality, we're dealing with some pretty like heavy themes throughout the book. It's not an allegory. Like I even heard people, I, I listened to some people's uh, reviews, like some people that just hadn't, didn't know anything about Lewis and were just coming in and just like reading the book because it's like a suggested, like scholastic, you know, collection kind of deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're like, yeah, it's, this book is an allegory of the allegory of Christ. And, and Aww. I'm like, what, I'm like, no. what is happening here? No, you know what I mean? Yeah. And right. so they don't, obviously now you have some people that they're not, Christian and they approach this book even entirely different and so it's like it's like to them they have no they have no way to to gauge their depth of understanding what this is trying to say and they just boil it down to like ah make good choices don't betray your friends kind of thing and like that's that's right. all I'm going to take from it mm -hmm. and I feel like I it's just it, a disservice <laughs> it is well and I think it just goes through the scope of how important this book is and how much this type of fiction is needed because when Lewis wrote it I mean kind of like when Jennifer was giving the introduction to his goddaughter I wonder if he realized how popular you know it was going to be because he created this book then he wrote six other books and one of them a prequel and and he kind of kept building the world and, and you do see kind of how there's a progression but I think the fact that it was popular just shows how much we we need this type of fiction we need you know we need it in our world and and people are wanting it you know Right. And, and I, especially, I think if you think about it, you know, the time that it was written, it was right. written in a time where they were in want of rescue. 
So during, during, you know, during World War II, but it wasn't just once it was released, it was post-World War II. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times we see how it's the repercussions of war. That is what people need rescuing from. Not always the war itself, but it's, you know, what's afterwards and looking for a hope beyond that. And that's Mm -hmm. what Lewis does through his writing, which is so, so incredible. Absolutely. And I think maybe one of the types of reasons, one of the reasons maybe why this book is maybe confuses an allegory at first glance is because the images in it are so very strong and they're so poignant and it, and it brings so much to mind images of the Christian life. And so let's talk a little bit just about the images in this book because they are so strong and so powerful. This book evokes a whole lot of images even the lamppost, you know, from our, our title, The Lamppost in the Woods, evokes strong images. And it's definitely like quintessential Narnian. Like even when we first started our podcast and, pe- and I was telling friends about it and we'd say, and I'd say, you know, the name is The Lamppost in the Woods. It's like they immediately realized that it was from Narnia because the, even the lamppost itself has become just a symbol of Narnia. And it's just so um, indicative kind of of the world. And uh C.S. Lewis claims, uh, or excuse me, he he claims the book began with unrelated images, and I think it's kind of cool that when he was 16, an image of a fawn appeared with an umbrella, kind of appeared in his head, and not until he was in his 40s did he decide to actually kind of put this down on paper and write this in a story, even though it had been in his head, and what, like a, a an image that doesn't just kind of doesn't really isn't really related a fawn this kind of mythological creature holding an umbrella which would be seen as kind of a a modern if you will I say that in air quotes kind of her modern of the time um, kind of item and even the use of the lamppost in the middle of a magical land there's a story kind of anecdote legend out there and I'm not quite sure how true it is but supposedly Lewis only included the lamppost in the book because Tolkien Tolkien told him that there's no way you can have a lamppost in a fantasy book. And I love the fact that he was kind of like, well, watch me. And he did it again, kind of like, take that J.R.R. with your languages <laughs> that you created and all that, which I think is kind of funny. So I think we're seeing a theme of Lewis, you know, like he's a kid and he marches into the house as a four-year-old and says, this is my name now, and kind of does whatever he wants with his book and just puts a lamppost in it just because he can which I think is kind of fun. So, um, so way to go, Lewis. And so, yeah, so just kind of like that, the book became formed around these kind of ra- seemingly random images that were put together. So what do you guys think? What are some images in the novel that stick out to you the most and why? I just want to say real quick, I think it's it's rich being like, ah, uh, you can't put a lamppost in a fantasy novel when, and I know it's totally like, it's, it's, this is on now modern. They made a move, they made movies of the Lord of the Rings, but like, there's a couple instances where there's like stuff sticking out in the background. Like there's a car in like one of the scenes in Lord of the Rings, yeah. like <laughs> driving by in the background. And so it's just like a funny, like, well, oh. you said you couldn't put a lamp. Yeah. There's, there's just some like little editing mistakes where it's like this, <laughs> I think it's a white car shows up in the background, like in the Shire and it drives by and it's just like in there. And I think, I think Tolkien's probably like rolling over in his grave, like thinking like, <laughs> oh my laughing. Lord, there's a car, you know? <laughs> Well, if you want to think of like an like a something comparable, what about that whole in the Hobbit that whole sequence where Gandalf tells Bilbo where where the game of golf was how the game of golf was invented? That's almost as bad as a lamppost in the middle of a <laughs> yeah. Well, what's yeah, the yeah. Point? Like how does that even like what's golf point, yeah. really? Yeah, you know what? Sense. It's probably because him and Lewis had a conversation about whether or not one should actually golf, and then Tolkien was go. like, you know what? I'm gonna no, put, put it, it in the book. book watch me 
So what do you guys think? What images stick out to you the most in the book? Well, I, I think perhaps other than the face of Aslan, I think the, the, the most, the quintessential image from the, maybe the entire series is that image of Lucy opening the wardrobe and walking in and going into the land of Narnia. Mm. You know, that, that, that's, that's the boundary between the real world and, and, and fantasy imagination. And I'm sure we could, we could spend time talking about like what the significance of that is, perhaps the, 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 the boundary between, you know, what you can see and what you have to believe in, what you have to have, have faith in, you know, I'm sure we could go all over that. But even just as a central image, that image right there of like the curiosity of the book and like the fantasy nature and the childlike nature of the book mm -hmm. is contained right there in Lucy. And I think th this last time I read through the books, I really noticed how important Lucy is to the entire series. Yeah. So there Lucy, you go, Jen. Yeah. I know, yes. And I you felt the same way. You got to play the most way. important character. Right. <laughs> I think, and that's, that, that's what I want to say too, is the fact of reading this book as an adult was so mm -hmm. different from reading it as a child. Totally. And for one, I appreciated the wit and humor of C.S. Lewis in a mm -hmm. whole new way. Um, I just love how witty he is in the book, but also you do, you see like who the true hero is. And I think so much, you know, it's Lucy, like Lucy, mm -hmm. you know, we can mm -hmm. get all into that, but just reading that. And so as an adult, I'm like, you know what? Yeah. As a kid, I was playing like the most important <laughs> character. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> and I, I also think Lucy represents uh number one she represents like like the childlike nature of everybody because mm -hmm. even when she's older and she grows she's still she's the one who always believes if you go to prince caspian you go to voyage of the dawn trader she always is the one who believes in aslan first she's always the one who who is ready to step out on faith first so she's that she's that childlike nature even when jesus was talking about you know um suffer little children to come into me because such is the kingdom of heaven i think lucy represents that but then also she seems to represent the reader the most out of mm -hmm. any other character. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think we'll talk about it a little bit, but Edmund represents us as like a kind of a fallen nature and how we have to be redeemed. And, and, and Susan and Peter, I'm sure have aspects as well, but Lucy is really the one who seems to represent us as a reader and just mm -hmm. as people like how, and, and definitely the person we should emulate the most is I mm -hmm. think is Lucy. And, and that's right. without Lucy, there's no story. Right. Lucy doesn't go in, into the wardrobe and believe and come back and tell people. None of the other characters would have told the rest of their mm -hmm. siblings. So Only true. Lucy does. Mm -hmm. The whole entire series yeah. it revolves around Lucy. So as a central image, I think that's about as, as important as you can get. I think it has to work that way too, because for anyone that has siblings, like you have the younger one who goes in and experiences all this stuff and then comes back out and is like telling everybody and then no one, like no one buys it. And I think without that, it's right. it almost it almost wouldn't work the same way. But just the fact that like Lewis is going to throw, throw her under the bus almost and be like, she's going to act crazy and tell this wild story. And obviously no one's going to believe her. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it almost makes me think, you know, when those girls came to stay with him, like I almost, this had to have happened. This almost had to have happened as, yeah. you know, the youngest one explored that. You know what I mean? Like it just, right. mm -hmm. it's almost too perfect. It. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. And you know what? That's why I think it's, it's really comical, like reading it when Edmund goes into Narnia and then comes back and you just, you just want to like strangle oh, him. You hate him. Yeah. <laughs> One, because I think it's relatable. <clears throat> it's relatable to every single older sister out there. <laughs> that is what I'll say is there have been so many times that if my brother's listening where 
we would, certain things would happen and he would come and just like antagonize. So Edmund kind of frustrates me, which yeah. is why he gets what he deserves when he goes back into Narnia. Right. <laughs> but kind of like, so with that said, I think um, one of the things is, you know, that first image of, is of Lucy entering the wardrobe. And then Edmund, though, too, he has a curiosity and he, you know, he enters, enters back in. Mm -hmm. And so I think with that is he, he also had to have some type of childlike faith too, some type Mm -hmm. of curiosity that goes in there. I know that's kind of like a a twist. Maybe we never like saw that before, but he has to have some type of faith to step into the wardrobe. Maybe, you know, when you read it, he kind of stumbles upon it, but he also does have to have some type of faith to enter in and then also to go back into Narnia and to go back to what he saw and knew and wants more of. However, um, in Edmund's case, we see that it was, it was on the evil side and that it was temptation and what had drawn him to Narnia was the fact that he came upon the white witch and got to taste this wonderful Turkish delight. Turkish delight. Yes. Which Turkish delight, like the one thing about Turkish delight is when I was reading it, I was wondering what in the world, like why Turkish delight? Why does Lewis mention Turkish delight? It's not a delicacy that people ate in England. You know, it's from the country of Turkey. And I think like with that, it's because of the fact that Narnia is such like an exotic and foreign world. And so it's that idea of Turkish delight is even this thing that is exotic. And also because Lewis is writing this during World War II when there were war rations and they hadn't had sugar in a long time. And so he's probably just daydreaming about having <laughs> like the best sugary sweet possible. And <laughs> a side, on a side note, has anyone ever actually eaten Turkish delight? Yes. Yes. Because yeah. I have and I thought it was gross. I, have, I did not like it. I, I don't like yeah. it at all. No. It's not good at all. Maybe that's part of the imagery though, too, because like legitimately you eat a piece of Turkish delight. And I think, I think Edmund even like makes a point to be like, oh, like I don't feel so good. Like I've eaten too much of this. And Mm -hmm. it just, it's one of those deals where it's like you eat a piece and you're like, all right. But I, I mean, obviously we're a little spoiled in modern day with our desserts and things like that. But you eat a couple pieces of it and it like, suddenly it's like way too much sugar. It's like eating a donut. Yeah. I just, I don't. There's got to be something to it being like, wow, it's this amazing exotic thing, but it's really not that good after a couple pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Probably something. Well, there. it ended up not being a very good thing for Edmund. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <ultimately>. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, and and but the other thing is too, what the book makes mention of the Turkish delight that it's not just any Turkish delight. It does also say that it's enchanted mm. uh, Turkish delight. So it's sure in does. the essence, yeah. So in the essence, it's to make him do anything that the White Witch will ask. And it actually just plants this deep desire inside of him for more, which is why he's so drawn to, because when he goes back to Narnia, it's not like going up to the White Witch Castle is right around the corner. Like he treks and journeys to get to the White Witch's Castle to, Mm -hmm. that's how desperate he is for this. And you see how much temptation and how tasting something just leads down you down that path. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So his role, Edmund's role in this uh, in this story, I, I think is also very important. It's probably second second only to Lucy's role in the story in that he he's he's also the portion of all of us that is the sinful portion and the and the and the bad portion, the portion that lies, the side of us that is 
uh, that it's, is selfish and wants to do things for ourselves. And then of course he is, um, he's redeemed in the end. You know, I've heard people, I've heard people say, you know, he's, Edmund is like the Judas because he's the one, one who betrays Christ kind of, but, but not, I don't really think that's super accurate in a sense, yeah. except for in the sense that Judas is a human like the rest of us. I think mm-hmm. Edmund, Edmund is just supposed to represent, or at least is the image of all of us. Yeah. He's the humanity. side of every, right. right the, 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 the fallen nature of every person, because then when we, we'll talk more about Aslan later and some of these other things, because then when, when Aslan essentially dies for him to, to purchase him back, right. that's what Jesus did for all of us. So if this yes. is, if Aslan is God in this world, right if we're going to place ourselves in it, we're also taking Edmund's role and that Jesus died for us as well. So good. Mm-hmm. So good. I love yeah. that. And, and for me, like, I know, you know, the iconic image is of Lucy going into that wardrobe, but I think one of my favorite images is when Edmund is rescued and he's mm. having that talk with Aslan and Aslan is telling him and tells his, his siblings you know, don't speak to him about the past yeah, because it's in yeah, the past. That's really good. And right. it's so powerful. And, and more than that is when the white witch then comes into the village because, you know, she comes into this camp because of the fact that Edmund had, was a traitor. And so technically then that means he, it, his blood belongs to her. Mm-hmm. And um, before that, so as she's coming in, Edmund, there's this quote in the book and it, to me, is like one of the most powerful quotes. And it says, Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he had been through and after the talk that he had had that morning with Aslan. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Mm. And I love that because he said he just went on looking at Aslan. And especially, you know, before at the beginning of the first time that these four siblings enter into this world of Narnia and they first hear the name of Aslan, Edmund was the only one who had this sense of horror and sense of when he heard the name of Aslan. And now after this like conversion experience, after being rescued by Aslan and his army, he just looks on Aslan. And now the white witch to him has no like authority over him. It doesn't matter what she said, says, like her remarks are empty. And I think that's such just a powerful image for us. Like when we fixate our eyes on God. It doesn't matter what the other voices say. It doesn't matter what, you know, other um, people are saying, what all these different voices that come that we just get our eyes um, on God. And then it didn't seem to matter what the witch said. It didn't seem to matter. And to me, that was just so moving and so, so powerful and allowed Edmund to step into his role, into that, into that, into the role that he would play in the battle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love yeah, it's, it. a, it's a very so powerful, good. very powerful image. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And especially even as a kid, because, because like little kids can identify with that. Right. Like, yeah. Oh, you wanted more sweets or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they can get that. But then us as adults, understanding more of the, the subtleties, we can understand as well in, in a different situation, how that, how that makes sense. Exactly. Uh, to us. Mm-hmm. Well, because the book even says that like, Edmund wasn't necessarily out there to be vindictive or evil and he didn't want to hurt his siblings. It even says in the book that he just, he, yeah, he, he was selfish. I mean, he wanted more Turkish delight for himself. He wanted to have gains for himself. He wanted to go be the king of Narnia. He didn't necessarily want to see his siblings suffer. He didn't want to see him get hurt, but unfortunately that's like the selfishness. If we want to look like this is his sin, that the selfishness of sin, you never mean to go out there and hurt anyone else. You're just kind of thinking about yourself, but unfortunately the 
the consequences of sin and the bad things that we do, it rarely ever just affects us. There's always collateral damage. There's always other people that it affects. And Edmund, Edmund totally realized that in the end. Mm-hmm. But yeah, what a powerful image, such a powerful image of him coming back in the, in the forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I think what I always go back to um, in this book as well is just kind of the the taboo that is the theme of magic in, in fiction and literature. Um, because, you know, any anyone that's from a conservative Christian upbringing or anything like that kind of has a, I think there's a taboo a little bit for reading things that that contain some themes that aren't like directly in line with with our like faith basis or, and so when, when Lewis and Tolkien like chase magic and like use it to permeate like every, every nook and cranny of their books, right? I think people get a bad taste in their mouth sometimes without really understanding what its representation is. And so it's even like, even again, talk, listening to some of these reviewers, like it almost felt like they didn't understand the place of what magic was supposed to represent, right? So in Narnia uh, and, and other of these fantasy worlds that these authors create right magic is kind of just a bigger theme for the supernatural um and kind of gives a little bit of a um a contrast to the real world that they're coming from right so you're you're leaving this real physical world and it's kind of like escapism you're going to this place where it's magical it's and i it's funny because that word itself magical we use that all the time to something that's wonderful and unbelievable um and it just so happens that we have like two different uh, you know, the white witch is using magic and, and, you know, these other entities are using magic and it's just the representation of something bigger than, than us, something we don't understand, um, and a way to almost move the, move the plot along as well in wonderful or unusual ways. Um, and so I just, like I said, I, I think it's, I think it's a taboo thing. I think there's a number of books that people just get turned off on. I know that um, I've talked to some people specifically about um, the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically about the Lord of the Rings. They're like, oh, like that doesn't interest me because of, you know, these reasons here. Let me lay this out because I don't, I don't feel like it matches with my faith, like with what I believe. And I think it's confusing for me. And I just don't really, I don't know, I guess I kind of don't really understand that because the stuff that we experience, the stuff that we know as supernatural is magical and it's unbelievable and it's and it's happening in our real world and so Mm -hmm. it's just really neat that we're seeing this like taking place in a book um and it kind of adds to that wonderment of being a child and like i don't know it makes me think of even like small like close-up magic tricks like you don't understand them but they're not real magic they're just something unexplainable and wonderful Mm -hmm. and beautiful um and there just so happens to be two sides of this good and evil, like, you know, any good fantasy book, right? Right, right. Yeah. Totally. totally. And I, I, think, I think that's the important distinction you just made, uh, Evan. You, you know, when, when I was a kid, when, when Don and I were kids, our parents, about stuff they would let us watch or read, they always made a distinction between like fantasy magic mm-hmm. and, like, and like witchcraft magic mm-hmm. or like, mm-hmm. the, there's, there's the term, and it's even used in Chronicles Narnia, dark magic. Right. You know, if, if we think about magic or even like witchcraft in the real world, that that would be that would be calling on supernatural forces other than God. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Some some sort of some sort of dark power other than God. Well, that's basically the same thing in Narnia and in Lord of the Rings and stories like that. There's magic as in the supernatural power, 
but there's good magic and then there's always dark magic like you, you get when you get into uh prince caspian there's a mm-hmm. point where some of the characters try to use dark magic and and right. and and resurrect the queen and stuff like That's that true. and and the good character was like no no we, we don't do that stuff yeah. Yeah. So even thing, in that context, it was bad. Right, right, right. Same thing in Lord of the Rings. There's yeah. necromancy, which is raising the dead. There's the there's the dark magic and stuff that is always distinguishes these distinguishes these supernatural powers between like the good powers and the bad powers. Right. You know. So if there's if there's I can see that, and sometimes there's works where they're very heavily like witchcraft and like calling up spirits and casting spells stuff like that, and I can see how that can start to get into something that, that a lot of people would not want to read about. But we get go to Chronicles of Narnia, there's like this, there's this, the we just call it, they just call it magic. And then there's the mm-hmm. dark magic that, that is distinguished between those right. two. Right. Well, because even I'm looking at the part in the yeah. book where um, Aslan's explaining to uh, Lucy and Susan um, kind of how he was able to, to be, you know, resurrected or whatever. He says that though the witch said, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. So there's like always this like higher power, like if you will, of, of magic, the magic of Aslan. Her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. So there's always like, even with the dark magic, there's always like a higher, even in our, there's like a higher power, like a good, a good power. And that brings us right into probably to the a really important symbol, or excuse me, image as well, um, of the Lucy and Susan accompanying As Aslan to the to the stone table too, which is really powerful. Yeah, I was getting there. So I know you're trying to bring it over, but but I was getting there. I was trying to think of a good good segue to get over there. So, um, but yes, I think one of the uh, to me one of the one of the one of the best images that stands out is. Um, Lucy and and Susan when they're going with Aslan, basically going to his death even they don't know it. And I think, first of all, there's this there's this kind of humanity sort of thing that we know Jesus in the garden struggled with his humanity and this this you know this intense pressure that he had to do something that he didn't want to do it, you know. And we know Jesus was distraught. And we know Jesus was in physical in physical pain even because of this thing he had to do. And so we had to deal with this sort of thing uh, in his humanity. And I kind of, I think we kind of see a little uh, flicker of that in Aslan and that he's going to his death and he wants comfort of these two Mm -hmm. girls walking with him. And then also because I think it's important that it's the two girls because at the, at the death of Jesus, all Mm -hmm. the disciples were gone other than uh, the disciple, John, you know, it was the women who were there. It was Mary, the mother of Jesus and, uh, John's mother and Mary Magdalene, uh, and then they were the ones too who who first saw Jesus yes, when he was resurrected. Yes, absolutely. So I think it's very important that it, that it's these two girls, and then also Lucy, the one who really believes. They're the ones who are with him, and they go with him to basically to his crucifixion, if you will, his death. Yeah. Um, and then they're also there for his resurrection. I think that's another powerful image as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah and like tying into that too we know that you know after Aslan dies and when that resurrection happened when we see Aslan come back to life there's the breaking of the of the stone table 
And in the same way, just representing how that represents the old law. It represents, you know, in, in the, the Ten Commandments, like you see that just the picture of, of what's being established there, because in the same way that we know that when you study scripture, that the veil in the temple broke when Jesus resurrected when Jesus died. And so it's just such like a powerful parallel. Yeah, and that's a good point because I, I always just assumed that the table was represented the cross because that's what Aslan dies on. Yeah. You know, but like it makes a whole lot more sense even though like the law of Moses, which was a stone tablet yeah, right. and he's on a stone table. Yeah. And then it breaks like the veil was right. Mm -hmm. Was torn. It's right. it's it's really the imagery there is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, I think it's really cool too there like the movie itself has just such a good representation of this. Like yeah. you obviously read it, but to see that kind of thing happen, like it's just so emotional and moving and really yeah. mm -hmm. it's a powerful yeah, it image to see like played out because yeah, absolutely. we just, it's on, you know, it's words on paper if we're reading about the veil or reading about the cross mm -hmm. or, and so having that physical representation where it's like, you just, you blink and suddenly the table's broken and the body's gone. Yeah. Like it's right. super exactly. cool. Yeah. And even and, just like, sorry, go ahead, Jen. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's so supernatural. Yeah. And it's just representation because right afterwards is when Aslan uh, talks to um, Susan and Lucy and tells him about the old magic. He right, tells right. them about yeah. that, what you had just mentioned. And it was because of that. So we see just the correlation there once again. That just, I mean, that entire image, I mean, even right, right before like the, you know, he actually dies, but even just with you know the, the witch and all of her her minions and all that and them like shaving him and cutting off his beautiful mane which is so symbolic of a lion and just all that stuff just like oh my goodness just like the emotions that it that it that it brings up and them tying him up and all that just my goodness just so many just emotions and it just really brings through and just puts it in a different light just kind of the the shame and the humiliation that Aslan went through just like Jesus went through for all of us and mm -hmm. just did it even though like and something about him being a lion I don't it just puts it so clearly it's like he's a lion like he could have just like totally killed like demolished right. all those people immediately just like that but he didn't and he suffered through it mm -hmm. and so just just like that's so pointed to it's like how much more was it where Jesus Christ like God in a human body could have completely just called angels to his rescue, done anything that he wanted to do, but he suffered through all of that. You know, it just, my goodness, it just puts a, a cool, cool, you know, added lens to it. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, one thing I wanted to mention too, was the idea that before Aslan returns, it was winter mm -hmm. and not just a lovely winter, you know, Lucy hmm. says like, there's, you know, winter's lovely. You have ice skating and there's presents and Christmas. And then we see Mr. Tumnus say, no, we haven't had a Christmas in years, you know, a hundred years. And she is like, what? Like, how can you have, have a winter without Christmas, without presents? Yeah. And it's more like the symbolism that why winter? And I think the main thing is that, you know, everything is completely barren everything is completely, it's desolate, it's hopeless. And the idea of there being even no Christmas is that there's no hope, like there's no joy um, within, within the winter season. And bef but before Aslan arrives, so even before Aslan arrives, we actually see that Christmas has, Christmas has come in the form of Father Christmas, mm -hmm. uh, which that is a whole nother thing that we can talk <laughs> about. <laughs> we have some thoughts about that we definitely have some feelings um, about that 
but just kind of like on on things that I was realizing like in commentary about this is we know that Christmas is a sign of hope and so in this instance it's like representing to we see like the beavers when they see father Christmas to them they're like well then Aslan's on his way like Aslan is coming and so the idea of Christmas it's representing the coming of their king and that's now spring's gonna come hope's gonna come so good but do you guys want to talk about father christmas <laughs> yes please. I, I think we should i think we should we've done a lot of just like geeking out over lewis and just like you know singing his praises that yeah maybe we should talk about father christmas <laughs> i mean you know, we don't have an issue with father christmas or christmas in general as a rule i love christmas but just the use of it in the book is definitely a bit odd because it seems like you're yeah he's definitely mixing um mixing metaphors he's mixing um He's mixing imagery a bit. Definitely. Mixing allegories. Or allegories. No. Allegories. <laughs> Evan, I think you had some good uh, thoughts on Father Christmas. Was I mistaken? Well, I, I think <laughs> as a whole, I think the <laughs> the introduction of just like all of these various myths, and obviously we talked about he loves like Irish mythology and it's a little jarring at times when you see all of these different creatures and things thrown together and there's something endearing about it because again we're talking about this being like an early like an early work and he's really developing who he is as a writer and he's just he's just like mishmashing all of his favorite stuff and so in the same way that we're like geeking out and just like talking about our favorite literature and talking about how we love Lewis like in the same regard I feel like he was this medieval scholar and he was like, all right, we got swords, we got witches, <laughs> we got magic. And he was like, what, what's the Greek mythology got? What's the Irish mythology got? And so he was true. just like throwing it in. And then, you know, somebody, he was like, oh, I love Christmas. We're going to have Christmas too. Um, and so, uh, you know, a very Talking British, yeah. <laughs> right. A very British father Christmas comes along. Well, and um, even tea, like tea and crumpets, like, you know, uh, Lucy goes to Mr. Thomas and they have tea and biscuits like how more British and they like, have it's like yeah a, yeah and then at the beaver's like, house they have fish and chips like I just love that he's like he just wants to throw everything in um, and so we were talking about this earlier and I'm I'm like the very perfect modern representation of this is is for people that play video games that know a little bit of pop culture is the kingdom Hearts saga AKA not me <laughs> which is where like just yeah, a quick like yeah <laughs> so so there's I'm with this, you I'm there's with you this, Evan there's this creation of a game called Final Fantasy and the the lovely story behind the the um intellectual property that is final fantasy is that there was a the creator they were like hey we want you to make one more video game before you retire and he's like all right cool it's i'm gonna call it final fantasy it's my final story and it was such a big hit that they kept making them and so at this point this has been going on for years there's like 15 final fantasies and so but part of that they were like hey we love disney too let's just throw them together so you got like these disney characters fighting alongside these strange humans and so it's just it's just the weirdest combination when you see these characters mismatched together but for some reason that's like the most one of those popular video game franchises on the planet right now like it people love that mismatch and and just throwing these characters together and I think it's endearing for Lewis I think it yeah it's so heavy-handed and it's so unbelievable Mm -hmm. in a way that it's like 
you know what? Why not? Why it kind of just works. And so when when Father Christmas shows up, you're just like, really? Santa's here? Like that's okay. All right. I guess we're <laughs> doing <do> this. this. <laughs> and it's like, oh, is he giving away like a like a little, you know, toy car? No, no, it's it's like swords and bows and horns and like I it, I just doors. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't, you know. <laughs> and also like I think I don't know, like I I, w- I was re-watching Narnia last night and I thought it's just so funny that when he gives them the gifts, like they're not alarmed by the gifts they're receiving. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know? like, like, oh yes, a sword. Oh yes, like a bow and arrow. Thank you, Santa. Like they're, yes. it, it's as though it's normal. Yeah. You know? Which exactly for anyone who would maybe say that, oh, Lewis is just a, ch-, you know, Narnia is just a children's book. Like there's some heavy stuff. Like these kids for Christmas, these children are getting mm-hmm. swords and bows and arrows and magic cordial to like heal people when they're dying on the battlefield. Like there's some intense stuff in here, you know? That feels <laughs> intentional to me, right? It feels right, intentional right, yeah. with the with the war going on, right? Absolutely. It felt like, okay, you know, for Christmas, we're going to get- That's true. Uh, we're going to get some, a gas mask, like yeah. <laughs> to protect us. <laughs> it's true, right? right. Like it that's a legitimate yeah. thing, right? Yeah, and right. so, but it's the most British thing for these kids, not not even just the getting these weapons, but it's the most British thing in the world for them to be like, ah, a magical wardrobe. Let's all go through it. <laughs> and they just disappear and they just don't care. And they just like, and I know again, it's like, you know, it's progression of the storyline, but they're just gung-ho for every little thing that happens. There's right. not a single question about it. They're just, they're right. all for it. Yeah. Except exactly. Susan, except Susan. She's the only exactly. realist in the entire- That's true. That's true. (laughs) Exactly. And we will definitely, as we get into other books later, we will definitely have thoughts about Susan, but no, I even think she, if we're looking at, and of course each kid isn't like a, um, a clear allegory or anything, or like a clear representation, but Susan is almost like this, like voice of reason who you're kind of annoyed by a little bit, but at least in the book, a lot of times she says like sensible things. Like, I'm pretty sure she's the one that says, and I might be wrong, but like, oh, hey, we should actually bring some of these coats with us from the wardrobe if we're going to go out in the snow. Like all these sensible, <laughs> yeah. like boring things, you know, mm-hmm. she thinks of and it, and it ends up, you know, helping them along the way. Yeah, and while, we're, while we're talking about this, like, uh, you know, disjointed uh, fancy here with all this stuff flown in here that, you know, stuff, Father Christmas comes up, no bats and eyelashes. I got to mention Bacchus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For those of you who don't know, but let, let me read this quote. This is uh, from uh, one of the early chapters, uh, and it says, "When Mr. Tumnus is telling her about something that goes on, he says, and then about summer when the woods were green, and old Solenus and his fat donkey would come visit them, and sometimes Bacchus himself. Then the streams would run with wine instead of water, and the whole force would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. Those of you who don't know who Bacchus is." Bacchus is the Roman god of wine, okay? So not only do we have centaurs and satyrs and like minotaurs, we literally have like Roman gods and not like Zeus or Apollo, <laughs> like, or, or sorry, Zeus cool is the Greek, yeah. Jove or, 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 or Jupiter. We have, we have Bacchus, the god of wine, and he makes the rivers run with wine. Like, first of all, that, that's definitely not a kid's portion of the book. No, but it's second not. of all, what is the roman god of wine doing here and even even when you go to when you go to prince caspian the weirdest part of the whole book is right before they get to like the battle like bacchus shows up with all his satyrs and his friends and the trees and like excuse my language i guess but they all have an orgy 
It's it's like this orgy of drinking. Obviously, not a sexual orgy. Okay, just you read the book, right? <laughs> they have this they have this orgy of like drinking wine and like dancing and like they fall all fall asleep together. And it's like, what the heck is this doing in the book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it is the most jarring stuff. thing. Yes, yeah, yes, it yeah. makes because as a kid I read it and I I just went right past it. Didn't think of it, yeah. didn't know what that was. But now as an adult reading, it's like, what was this doing in the book? Yeah. And I mean, I, I rec- like I, I full disclosure, I read this, I reread it not too long ago and I to- totally missed the part about Bacchus. It is kind of Did like you? a throwaway. Yeah. I what about Prince it. Caspian? Do you remember that? See, that part just disappears from people's mind, but it actually is like a whole chapter. <laughs> I don't really it's a whole chapter. It disappears from everyone's mind. <laughs> yes, but it's like ends. a whole chapter and it's like, what is going on? Well, obviously it disappears. Now, I, I know, I, I think it's in Miracles that C.S. Lewis writes about. It's in Miracles. He writes that something about he argues for why wine is good and it's from God. And, you know, God gave men wine to gladden the hearts of men or something yeah. like that. Well, so he does like drinking. That's, but and again, that's what I was going to speak to is the fact that I like, okay, going back gonna... to, yeah, going back to the beginning, most of the ideation and the conversation surrounding the writing of Narnia happened at the Eagle and Child. It happened inside a pub. It happened around pints of having beer with his friends. That was Lewis's favorite thing to do. And so with his friends and that's where they would have great conversations about literature and so it seems to be once again lewis is just including something that he loves and adding to the array of characters in here which is is strange you just um, think he would have invented someone like he would have created something new instead of just right, being like all right back which yeah. is why Tolkien, yeah. yeah which is why tolkien didn't like it because he's like really you're gonna you're gonna pull probably, like characters that already exist yeah before? like tolkien come up with new, so new characters yeah although i will i'll get super spiritual here and for a second when you first talk about like the rivers flowed with wine i guess i was thinking like a whole turning water to wine type of thing jesus doing that so i was like he tr- is he trying to give another yes it could be that he could be I mean, I don't know. Maybe somebody will try to like say that, but just again, like me not remembering the part in the book and just hearing you talking about the rivers turning to wine. That's what I first thought of because I think, mm-hmm. was it supposed to be at a time when there was plenty and it was like a great fun yes. time? Okay. I'm sure yeah. that's what he means. It, 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 Bacchus wasn't just the God of wine. It was also, I think of the harvest and okay. of plenty. And he, and, and he represented like, I think this, you know, happy, carefree sort of time, which is, which in that sort of way, it kind of fits because that's what Lewis is trying to do. But when you think about it, it, like, am I wrong? It no, just it's, no, it's odd. <laughs> no, but I loved his book. attitude. Just be like, whatever. I don't even care. Like, I'm gonna do what I want with my book. Yeah, like, once I, again, yeah. Lewis doesn't I really care. Like this, I I know. And so you can totally see how Tolkien would have been probably so annoyed with him, like in his his world that he created and all of that. But some of my the image that I guess that that really stuck out to me was um you know the witch so some of the things that that she did in order to you know get rid of her victims or kill her victims she turned them into stone she turned them into stone statue and the statues and then towards the end of the book Aslan breathing on them restores them all to life it just brings up images to me of the hearts of stone that Ezekiel talks about um in Ezekiel chapter 36 um, and he's pro- there's a prophecy and it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So, and that's what, you know, the, the coming Messiah was supposed to do. And so you see these people, you know, like us having these just hearts of stone and being like stone, but then the spirit of the Lord is what gives us life. And then as in breathing on all of these stone statues, it was, is what revives them or brings new life to them. So I just love that how he's able to just like 
anything that the witch does, he's able to like undo all of it. It doesn't matter what she mm-hmm. does. He's able to completely turn it around and change it around. And what an, if we're talking about epic scenes, what an epic scene where he goes and he, bre- him and Lucy and Susan, they go and they, he breeds on all of the animals and Lucy's healing them all with her cordial or whatever. And then they go and they help the battle. It's like, oh, that moment, you know, <laughs> kind of like, you know, Lord of the Rings where it's starting to get light and Aragorn turns and he sees Gandalf coming, you know, it's just like, yes, like that moment when you just know that like the battle is won. So I just, I love that. That was a really big, important scene for me. It so, felt like so, Tolkien was like, I can do this better. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah. You know, watch you this, yes. Watch this. <laughs> you guys know that meme, hold my beer? I feel yeah. like that's literally all they were doing while they yeah, were in their, in their club. Yeah. They're sitting in their club with their beers and he's like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hold my beer. I'll do it better. Well, I'm going to, it's just literally, that's their yeah. whole attitude, these guys. Oh, it's awesome because yeah, I feel exactly. like Tolkien and of course like we love Narnia we were talking about Narnia first but we probably we love Lord of the Rings I'm sure I'm like just as much as Narnia like we, we love yeah. it Tolkien, all, will, Tolkin will get his chance he's definitely going to, going to come <laughs> up but it's just funny because it's like he tried so hard doing all the things and it's like Lewis I'm not saying he didn't try hard with these books at all but it's like he's just like Meh, whatever and he just comes up with this absolute masterpiece like I feel like I would have hated Lewis like I would have I would have loved his stuff but I would have been like it's not even fair look how great your books are and you're just like you know make you know not even making up your own stuff you're just stealing from everyone else and putting it in your book but it randomly works and we love it yeah. we've talked for almost yeah. an hour about it you know and, and no wonder it took lewis 10 years to write the first one yeah, yeah. he's like i gotta add all my things all of my things yeah. that i want it's to like add. oh wait wait a second father christmas yeah one more uh, thing one more thing <laughs> okay so since we talked about father christmas and bacchus maybe we should make mention of the most one of the most important characters of yes, the entire book. Yes, we've Aslan. skirted around him so far. Yeah. Yes, Aslan. And I know, like, in studying, like, ta- of Lewis, like, writing these books, he said that at one point he was really having a hard time bringing the whole world of Narnia together. But then once. Well, obviously, As- like, he's yeah. putting some <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, no wonder Rich. he obviously had trouble. I get you. I guess you why. <laughs> He had, yeah, he had a lot of trouble. See, this was the problem. He had characters like Father Christmas and Bacchus before Aslan was ever introduced. Oh, so yeah. they made no sense, probably. And then he, <laughs> who knows? So then he introduces Aslan to the story. And he said, once Aslan came into the story, that everything made sense, mm-hmm. which is really like in that, that in and of yeah. itself, even in the writing process is pretty powerful. And from there, he was then able to just uh, move forward with this. Another just fun fact about the name Aslan, which I didn't realize until we started doing some research on the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, is that the name Aslan is lion in Turkish. Ooh. So once again, C.S. Lewis had this weird obsession with Turkey or something. Yeah. (laughs) You got the Turkish delight. You got the name Aslan from the Turkish language. Right. Um, But he, he said that actually he got that name when he was uh, reading, um, I believe it's uh, Edward Lane's commentary on uh, Arabian Nights. And Mm. that's where he had found the name Aslan and had made note of it. So it just goes to show once again, that reading literature as as writers that were greatly influenced by a lot of the other other things that we read yes mic drop yes there we go (laughs) so if you're wanting to write you you better be a really good reader (laughs) yeah i think i think that as far as images goes 
a lion is just in any sort of context, it's probably one of the strongest images you could you could use. So true. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, you could go into like the actual, you know, what do what do lions actually do? How do they actually live? But it doesn't really matter because like the mm -hmm. the the connotations that we every human being seems to have on seeing a lion is just one of absolute awe. You know, and I um I once listened to an interview with Liam Neeson, who does the voice of Aslan in the movies. You know, they were asking, he was talking about, you know, I was trying to figure out why Lewis used the image of a lion. Why did he choose a lion and not a bear? And he was going into all these Very good impersonations. Like, that is a really yeah, good that Liam That pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I have a particular set of skills. And, no, just kidding. Um, but but he's but like he was trying like he was having this. Well, I, try, I asked myself why why a lion and not a bear or something like that. And and he went through this whole thing about how a lion is just like the the powerful image of a lion, which is good. But when it comes down to it, there's one reason why it's a lion, and that's because the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 the the reasons are related because, uh, that that's why. Uh, in the Bible, that's that's why the, the the animal, the lion, is used to represent the tribe of Judah, that warlike power, mm -hmm. the warlike tribe, and then also Jesus himself, because because there was there was probably no other image. Like you think in the Bible, what other images do they use to express the glory and the majesty and the power that's of God? True. Mm -hmm. You know, the the most the best one is the lion, and I just right. know it, I watched the movies of the of the books recently in preparation for it, and just every single time. Aslan shows up and roars. This is like goosebumps. Yeah, it because is. there there was something so yeah. there's some there was something so like exciting about it, and then he just he tears everybody up. Yeah, you know. Yes, so he does. again, again, and I just want to emphasize here as well: he's not an allegory for Jesus or right. God. Aslan is supposed to be Jesus, but in this world, right? You know, it's, right. It's, it's if it's if the one God that we believe in, you know, who who mm -hmm. who made himself a body and and manifests himself as this man, Jesus Christ. In this magical world, how does he manifest himself? And Lewis supposes he would do it as a lion. Right. If, if it's a world of animals, what is God going to appear as? Well, obviously right. a lion. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, and another like interesting thing too is when Lewis was crafting this story is that he was having dreams about a lion. Hmm. And yes. wow, that he was having dreams about a lion and that's what resulted in him putting that to paper and creating Aslan to be a lion. So I just thought, cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, I think, in just the way that all of, you know, the way that these writings came to be. So mm -hmm. I guess Aslan was roaring to him in the night and he woke up and he was like, well, <laughs> um, I gotta write it down. <laughs> gotta write it down. That's gotta so write awesome. it down. Yeah, talking about characters waking up in the middle of the night. And it's just, he, I just love him so much because you get like the roaring and the how powerful and it's like he roars one second and then it's like anytime he speaks regardless if you're watching the movie or even you're reading like his dialogue that he gives on the page mm -hmm. is the most like it's so calming and it's like it warms your heart it, it's in just the dichotomy of him being like this powerful you know beast but then also just being so calming and kind and like this I don't know lowly kind of you know, creature I guess if you will and and that is just really powerful to me and like when it talks about even in the book when and you kind of alluded to it Jen but like what each of the children felt the first time mm -hmm. they heard the name of Aslan when you talked about how Ed Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror the text says Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous Su Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her 
And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. And even just Lewis's imagery right there, like especially for kids, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, number one, feeling brave, brave and adventurous, but then listen to like like a beautiful smell, like maybe like my favorite, one of my favorite smells is the smell of chocolate chip cookies baking, like the smell of chocolate chip cookies or beautiful music. Or like when you first wake up and realize I don't have to go to school today or I don't have to go to work today. And just like the feelings of peace and just like, ah, that it brings to you, which I just absolutely love. His, his imagery there is, is perfect. Yeah. And I think, you know, also like in addition to that is when they're first talking about Aslan, is I believe it's Lucy who says is um, is Aslan's uh, is Aslan safe, or you know is he is he a safe individual? And and Mr. Beaver goes, he's not safe, but he's good. I tell you, yeah. And that to me is so so very profound because a lot of times even like you know in the same sense when you're like reading the Bible of how Jesus mm-hmm. would uh, terrorize, you know, certain, certain people that it would bring about a feeling where um, even in walking with the disciples and they say, well, some are afraid of him, mm-hmm. but he's good. Right. And it's just that reminder too, that, you know, he's, he's not, he's not safe, but he is, he is so good. Um, yes. And from that, the, the, from that Lucy and Susan and Peter still feel um, that sense of, of what you just talked about. Edmund, on the other hand, Mm-hmm. Not so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Edmund was gone. Edmund was yeah, gone exactly. He was gone. Yeah. <laughs> totally. I think a related quote to what you said too, Jen, is at the end of the book when Lucy's talking to Mr. Tumnus and she asks him, you know, are we going to see Aslan again? Mm, um, yeah. He tells him, like, yeah, you know, we'll see him. He'll drop in and now, and now and then. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Mm-hmm. And that that reminds me of just going off base a little bit in the silver, the beginning of the silver chair, when uh, Polly goes to Aslan's country at the end and she goes down, she's thirsty, wants to go drink at a river, but a lion is standing there and it's Aslan. And she asks him something along the lines of- I mean, G- yeah, Jill, Jill Pole. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, not Polly, Jill. Polly is the one from a, a, a magician. Yes, Jill. And she, asks, and she asks him, you know, are you a wild lion or something like that? And he says, yes. Yeah. He's like, no, do you eat people? And he says something like, I've devoured men, cities, and entire worlds. Yeah, I love like that. that. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. that's just one of those lines that was like, "Oh my goodness," you Ooh. know, because that's because that's who God is. But but then she comes down, and, and he won't. And the thing is, he won't tell her, "I won't eat you," or he won't exactly. tell her, "No, yeah. I'm all, like like I'm fine." He makes her come and trust him and go drink from the water. Which, right. I mean, that's it, that that that's that's our relationship with God in a nutshell, in a nutshell you know, putting faith in him, mm-hmm. coming to him, getting what we need. Exactly. Exactly. All right, you guys. So we are going to start to kind of transition towards our ending here. So let's move into our ending phase, which is our last words. So Jennifer, what's your last word on this book? Okay. My last word. I feel like we talked a lot more about Susan, Edmund and Lucy, and we didn't talk much about Peter. And one thing that I wanted to make mention of, which is probably another one of my favorite parts in the book, is Peter's uh, first battle, uh, the moment when uh, he first fights with the sword before, before they go into this ultimate battle. 
And, you know, the other people uh, in Aslan's army, they could have fought this, but Aslan says it's Peter's battle Mm -hmm. and how God himself entrusts certain battles to us and how we have to go through certain battles that prepare us for greater battles ahead. And to me, that was so crucial because if Peter didn't have that battle, then he wouldn't have been fully prepared or walked in the confidence when he wakes up one morning and Aslan's dead and now he's having to lead the army. Right. And um, because of that, that first battle that he, that Aslan entrusted to him, that that's the key thing. He entrusted the battle to him, um, to Peter. And because of that, later on, Peter was able to step into the role of leading the entire um, army of Aslan into this, into this battle against the white, white witch. And I think to me, that's just so powerful how God does that with us, how he mm-hmm. entrusts us and says, no, you know, you, you have the tools I've given it to you and I've shown you how, and now I'm going to give you the opportunity to go out. And because of this, because you're becoming equipped, then further ahead, you're going to be able to fight battles and walk in the confidence because you know that, that Aslan is present. Aslan Mm -hmm. is within you, um, that spirit of Aslan. And so to me, that is like, just so poignant in Peter's journey. Mm -hmm so good love it Evan what's the last word I think this book was so formative for me because it was probably the first um fantasy novel that like I had read to me um and it kind of informed the way that I just like loved and took in uh fantasy and fiction and literature And so just on a real practical sense, like if you're someone that's listening and you don't really do a lot of fiction, you've not really dove into anything, like why not take a chance with this? It's not a hard read. It's not a long read. Um, It's not something that I think is going to really like challenge you as far as your your aptitude for for understanding, you know, any theological themes or Christian themes or Uh, But I just, I really think it's a great introduction to just help you to, I think, love fiction. Mm. This book has helped me to love Mm. fiction and love what it can do by giving you a fresh perspective and showing you that you can see through the eyes of, of, of Lucy. Like you can become like a child again and you can, Mm. you can just take this in. I think, you know, we're, we're all recording, you know, in the midst of a pandemic and sometimes escapism is a little bit of what we need. Um, why not do that in a way that's going to help and educate you in some hidden ways maybe um, and just find something that you you love within within fiction. It may not be this exactly, but it may help you to get into some other stuff um, outside of self-help books or uh, you know, biographies, which there's nothing wrong with any of those, but mm-hmm. I just feel like in fiction, there's so much more potential um, to, to share something deeper that I think you can learn something and not even understand that you're learning something about yourself because you see, like you suddenly look in the mirror and you're like, oh, wow, I see myself in this mm-hmm. character. And I think there's something so uh, childlike and magical and just beautiful about that process of kind of one day just being like, oh, I see myself in this character and I see the world around me the way that they see the world. So good. Evan, so you, good. you make me want to read more fiction. <laughs> <laughs> 
So good. Love it. All right, Benjamin, what's your last word? Well, there's so much more stuff I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to, uh, especially wanted to talk about the witch. Uh, wanted to talk more about how Aslan kind of develops over the course of the, you know, the, the books. But I'm just going to sum it up by going, again, just a little bit off from where we are. I want to read you a quote from the end of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I think explains the entire series perfectly. It's at the end where Aslan tells Lucy and Edmund that they won't be able to come back to Narnia anymore and that they have to go to their world. And Edmund says, are you there too, sir? Said Edmund. I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Yes. And I, I, think, that, I think that sums up the entire series. Mm-hmm. Like Peter and Susan and Lucy and Edmund and, and Diggory and Polly and Jill and Eustace who are in other books, we get to go to Narnia and live in Narnia for a little bit when we read these books and get to know these characters and get to know Aslan so that in our own world, we can get to know these sort of people in our own lives and we can get to know our Aslan better, mm-hmm. which is God, which is yeah. Jesus. So that's you know, why fiction. That's why yeah. fiction. Yeah, absolutely. that's why. <laughs> read these books because you may just, it's not going to, like some of you guys said, it's not going to teach you all kinds of theology and stuff, but I think, I think it can prepare your heart a little bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. To the way it should be, the way your heart should be uh, in towards God in our own world. So 100%. Love it. And well, I shouldn't have made myself go last because I'm not going to be able to compare to all of you guys with all of your wonderful uh, wrap ups here. But what really stuck out to me this time in rereading the book was, and we mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but um, you know, when Lucy, Lucy's the first one who goes into the wardrobe and she's kind of the, you know, it, it all starts with Lucy and the, and the book happens because Lucy goes into the wardrobe, but you know, that first time when she goes into the wardrobe, she experiences Narnia. And when she tries to show her siblings, all they say is the back of a wardrobe and no one believes her. And she has to try to convince her siblings that Narnia is real and that this wonderful experience actually happened to her. And this kind of brings to mind sometimes even our role as Christians, you know, our job as Christians is, you know, the, Jesus has saved our lives and he has um, saved us. But our job now, once we've been saved by the Lord, is to tell other people about his saving message and to tell other people about what Jesus has done in us. And sometimes it can seem if people are not understanding, if they don't want to believe, it can seem absolutely ridiculous to people. It cannot seem to make a whole lot of sense. And so we have to convince people in our lives, convince our family and our friends that God is real and that God has done amazing experiences in our life and that he can change their life too. It makes me think of 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we recognize the power of God. And so our job is to tell other people about him and what he's done in our lives and just seeing Lucy and kind of her stroke, I, I guess, and how she had to convince her siblings to to believe in Narnia and, and believe what, what had happened to her was true. Um, you know, that's something that we also have to have to do as Christians too. So, all right. Well, you guys, sad to say our time in Narnia is drawing to an end. So let's fall out of that wardrobe and get back to the real world. But never you fear, we will definitely be coming back to Narnia. Many, many times we'll be coming back to Narnia. So thank you so much for joining us on our quest to find true meaning in our favorite stories. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to subscribe to The Lamppost in the Woods and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Jennifer, where can people connect with us on social media? You can find us on Instagram at lampposts and we are making sure to post as much content, behind the scenes things, so that you can kind of get a taste of what's to come. And then also uh, we'll make sure to make some interaction of hearing what kind of books you guys enjoy reading. Maybe based on what you guys share with us on Instagram, we may do an episode on that. So please feel free to uh, comment. Yes, leave a review, but also just let us know what you're interested in as well, because we also want to explore that too. Awesome. And one thing I did want to mention as well, we did not, I don't think we mentioned it in our first episode, but even though we are a bunch of readers, we actually have a few writers in our midst who have published books. So I want to give both Jennifer and Benjamin a chance real quick to just plug plug their social media accounts and see where you can connect with them to get information on their books. So Benjamin, why don't you go first? Um, well, uh, you can follow me at benjamin.d.copple. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, maybe you'd enjoy reading a book called We Believe for Each Other, which you can find on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's my first novel. And it is also about a lion, not only, but it does feature a lion as well, but it's an adventure story with a heart. So if you would like to go check that out and I'd appreciate it. Awesome. Jennifer. All right, so you can find me at Jen Malik Books and or on jenmalikbooks.com. And I have published, oh gosh, three books. <laughs> and so that's Unkept Secrets from the War, A Song for Psalm, and St. Ives Memory. And those are all available online. And if Wonderful. you like, uh, you know, uh, stories set in England, uh, all three of those are set <laughs> in England. <laughs> so awesome. There you have it. Great. Well, those of you, if you want to read more fiction, we've already given you some ideas. Go check out some of Ben's books and Jen's book, and there is more wonderful fiction for you to read right there. Thanks so much again for joining us. We hope that you will join us on our next episode. Benjamin, what will we be discussing next time? We're going to be talking about something that is close to my heart, fairy tales. Now, Woo. why why are adults going to, grown people going to be talking about fairy tales? Well, you're going to find out because they have something to say for our lives. So tune in next time. We're going to talk about those things. Sounds great. And again, folks, wherever you find yourself on life's journey, we hope and pray that this lamppost in the woods will help guide you to a hopeful future. We'll see you next time.